Let's pretend for a minute. Let's say that you're a respected child psychologist, and then one day everyone you know receives a copy of a newsletter accusing you of child abuse. You know that the evidence cited in the article isn't true, but you have no way of fighting back. Your colleagues stop referring children to you, you're publicly disgraced, and your practice dries up. In the summer of 1950, a book called Red Channels had much the same effect. Where there's red smoke, it claimed, there's usually communist fire. Red Channels claimed that communists now rely more on radio and TV than on the press and motion pictures as belts to transmit pro-Sovietism to the American public. And they listed the subversive activities of over 150 writers, directors, and performers, from Orson Welles to Edward G. Robinson to Judy Holliday to Lena Horne. If you were named in red channels, you were guilty until proven innocent. It was incumbent upon you to save your reputation by working with approved clearers who would make it possible for you to get work again. Coincidentally, these clearers were the same people who published the book. So they made money selling the book, and then they made money charging people who wanted to keep their names out of it. Extortionists, basically. Red Channels was the foundation of an East Coast blacklist overshadowing radio and TV. A blacklist that remained in place for much of the 1950s, thanks to the efforts of what we might call the livelihood lynch mob. This blacklist seriously affected and even ruined the lives of innocent people, leading in some cases to suicide. It was almost responsible for the cancellation of I Love Lucy, and even partly responsible for giving us a different Alice Cramden on The Honeymooners. Then it finally happened that one victim had enough and decided to fight the blacklist, and ended up breaking it. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Thanks for coming to the potluck. I'm David Inman. In World War II, the Allies were victorious over the fascists. You probably heard about it. It was in all the newspapers. But the victory led, ironically, to an era that was a perilous time for American civil liberties. Our politicians, our mass media, and many of our religious leaders did all they could to spread the belief that our way of life was about to be upended by communist infiltration. Some of them sincerely believed this. Others were peddling fear to make a buck. This fear and the kick that certain conservatives got out of persecuting liberals who might be, oh, I don't know, Jewish, led to the House Un-American Activities Committee going to Hollywood in 1947 to look into what they thought was communist subversion in Hollywood movies. Now, those hearings produced headlines and celebrity testimony. What came out of them was the Hollywood blacklist, willingly carried out by cowardly producers to get the committee off their backs. 
and it lasted for most of the next decade. If you're interested in the Hollywood Blacklist, then I recommend another podcast to you. It's called You Must Remember This. It's produced and narrated by Karina Longworth. She has put together an excellent series of episodes about the people affected by the blacklist in Hollywood. I can't recommend them highly enough. But you're not allowed to go listen to them right now. Sorry. Here, our focus is the blacklist that mostly involved performers on the East Coast, in radio, and in the new medium of television, which at that time was mostly based in New York City. The United States and the Soviet Union had been allies during World War II, but that partnership had begun to crumble toward the end of the war, and the resulting conflict triggered what came to be called the Cold War, a standoff between the two superpowers that would last until the USSR itself fell apart in the late 1980s. In 1946, a year after the war ended, several politicians, including a young California congressional candidate named Richard Nixon, figured out that tough talk about communism and smearing your opponent as a red, hardcore communist, or even as a pink, somewhat soft on communism, was a way to victory at the ballot box. That same year, in a speech given in Missouri, former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill coined a famous phrase my duty to place before you certain facts about the present position in Europe. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. The 1946 election results gave Republicans control of the U.S. House and Senate. The House Un-American Activities Committee, newly filled with anti-communist Republicans, eagerly began looking into communist subversion in Hollywood's movie business. But our story switches to New York City, where in April 1947, three ex-FBI agents formed a company called American Business Consultants, better known as ABC. They were also hoping to cash in on anti-communism by publishing a monthly newsletter called Counterattack. But their plan was to go much further than that. ABC would also sell itself to major corporations as a clearance agency, an entity that would give a company a seal of approval that its personnel and its dealings with ad agencies and the TV programming produced by those agencies were all communist-free. It's a little like putting a rat in someone's house and then charging them for exterminator service. Now, in those days, of course, most network programming was controlled not by the broadcast networks themselves, but by the advertisers, who would buy entire blocks of time, say a half-hour or hour-long slot. Now, these advertisers hired ad agencies to write, direct, and produce the shows and commercials, and those agencies went far, far out of their way to avoid any controversy of any kind that might hurt sales of the product they were advertising. You can listen to our other podcast episode called A Brief History of Ridiculous Sponsor Interference to learn more about it. It's one of our best. All right, fine. So I think every episode's one of our best. Anyway, 1950 was a very good year to be an anti-communist. In February, 
Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy was invited to speak to a West Virginia women's group on any topic he chose. McCarthy wanted some headlines, so he made the charge that the U.S. State Department was overrun by communists. He pulled a number out of his out of his pocket. 205 communists. Yeah, that's it. 205. It got headlines all right, even though McCarthy basically made it up. In fact, McCarthy would prove himself to be really good at conjuring up conspiracies which were printed and broadcast by a willing media. Prior to this hearing, may, may, I answer, may I answer that question, Mr. Chairman? I think we've got a much more serious situation now in communist infiltration of the CIA. Disturbs me beyond words. Well, we haven't. The members of the committee have not been advised, and I do think that... Oh, yes, they have. Oh, yes, they have. Have we... Uh, the names and, uh, of the people... I, I've discussed this matter with the members of the committee. I've also discussed with the members of the committee the question of communist infiltration of atomic and hydrogen bomb plants. I felt that was, I think, even more important than this infiltration at... Uh, may I... May, may I... Just, just let me finish in view of this one. One point. May I uh, have from the files all the memos and, and meetings and minutes with reference to this matter so that uh, we on the committee can you, be fully informed? You, you, you certainly may, Senator. Certainly may. In June of 1950, the Korean conflict began. The North Koreans were supported by the Soviet Union, so the whole thing seemed communist-inspired. Meanwhile, back in New York City, American Business Consultants was becoming an important part of a coalition that included a group of extreme right-wing anti-commie crusaders. One of them was named Eleanor Johnson Buchanan, and she lived in Syracuse, New York. Her husband Jack, a Marine, was in Korea. Mrs. Johnson busied herself by working to expose what she thought of as, quote, red sympathizers on radio and television, and those do-nothing patriotic citizens who discuss the wrongs of the world over a dinner table while my quiet, unassuming Jack eats sea rations on a battlefield amid flies from the dead gook 20 feet away. <clears throat> Unquote. Mrs. Buchanan's enthusiasm was matched by her father, Lawrence Johnson. Mr. Johnson also lived in Syracuse, and he happened to own a small chain of supermarkets. Johnson began helping his daughter work on her cause and soon took it over, wielding much more power with sponsors than his daughter ever thought of. Johnson was in constant communication with network and ad agency executives. If Johnson found any evidence of what he considered communist involvement on the part of a performer or producer, the product that sponsored that performer or show would be prominently marked with a sign indicating that the product's manufacturer employed what Johnson liked to call, quote, Stalin's little creatures, unquote. Then Johnson would display a competing product next to it with a sign proclaiming, here was a product made by a patriotic manufacturer and therefore deserved your patronage. One sponsor described the process. At one o'clock, I got a telegram signed Larry Johnson. At two o'clock, a telegram arrived signed by the Syracuse American Legion Post. At three o'clock, there was a wire from the Veterans Action Committee of Syracuse Supermarkets. Johnson was eventually elected to office in the National Association of Supermarkets, giving him even more power. 
Another member of what we call the Livelihood Lynch Mob was a woman named Hester McCullough, who lived in Greenwich, Connecticut. She had media connections. Her husband was a picture editor at Time Magazine, and she was in regular contact with a columnist with the right-wing Hearst newspapers. And she soon became acquainted with the men behind ABC and the counterattack newsletter. In June, the same month that Korea exploded, Counterattack published Red Channels, which would become the Blacklist Bible. And in August, it claimed its first scalp, thanks largely to Hester McCullough. Henry! Henry Aldrich! Come here, Father. That was the opening of a well-known family sitcom called The Aldrich Family, which was a big hit on radio for most of the 1940s. And like many successful radio shows, plans were made to bring the Aldrich family to TV. And an actress named Jean Muir was cast as the mother. Jean Muir was also listed in Red Channels. She was cited in the book for involvement in nine groups or events that the book considered communistic. Muir denied four of them flat out, but did admit that yes, she was one of thousands of people who signed a telegram congratulating the Moscow Art Theater on its 50th anniversary. She had also served as vice president of a group called the Congress of American Women. And she had contributed money to a publication called the Negro Quarterly. That was enough to send Hester McCullough into action. The Aldrich family was sponsored by General Foods, Jell-O to be precise, and General Foods heard from Hester McCullough and another handful of callers about Jean Muir. So in August, on the day that Jean Muir was celebrating the anniversary of her 20th year as a professional actress, she was fired from the Aldrich family. The reason? That she was a controversial person, and as such, company policy dictated her removal. Muir still received her agreed-upon payment, which to her indicated that General Foods knew the charges weren't true and wanted to avoid a lawsuit. Later, General Foods suspended the controversial person policy, but by that point, Muir had already been replaced by another actress. The owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money wrapped up in a five-pound note. And here is the story. Once upon a time, long, long ago, there lived in a lovely enchanted forest beside the sea a wise and elegant owl. That's the voice of Irene Wicker. She began a radio show called The Singing Lady in 1932, and it had run almost constantly ever since. She was also a familiar voice on Golden Records, a label aimed at children. Her on-air presence was gentle and reassuring, mixing songs and stories. She was a kind of a female Mr. Rogers. In the fall of 1950, Wicker was getting ready for her second season on ABC television, sponsored by Kellogg Cereals. But Irene Wicker also showed up in Red Channels, and suddenly the sponsor was gone. Wicker was cited in the book for one thing, that she had signed a petition supporting Benjamin J. Davis, 
a member of the New York City Council who was a communist. Irene Wicker went to the ABC offices to tell Red Channel's managing editor, Ted Kirkpatrick, that she had never heard of Benjamin J. Davis and that she hadn't even been in New York City when the petition was circulated. Kirkpatrick then asked her to give examples of how she had expressed her opposition to communism. Wicker told about conducting an I'm Glad I'm an American contest on her show, and she'd also done a series for Golden Records called Sing a Song of History. Then she told Kirkpatrick about her son, whom she had allowed to enlist in the Royal Canadian Air Force in the early days of World War II, even though he was under 18 at the time. He became an RAF pilot and was killed when his plane was shot down over the English Channel. None of that was good enough for Irene Wicker to be cleared. Next, Wicker obtained a court order allowing her attorney to examine all 30,000 names on the Benjamin Davis petition. Her name wasn't on it. So, finally, Irene Wicker was cleared. But as you might guess, no network wanted to go near her. Now, Wicker didn't totally disappear. She did several shows on local New York City television, and in 1961, she won a Peabody Award. In 1950, Jackie Gleason became the host of a variety show on the Dumont TV network called Cavalcade of Stars. He began doing sketches about a bus driver named Ralph Cramden and his sharp-tongued wife, Alice. Alice, I'm gonna go and see you. I know you don't want me around after that. Uh, I'm sorry. I hope you forgive me. Not only forgive you, I thank you. Thank you. It might sound a little corny, but not every woman has a husband who's still jealous of her after 12 years of married life. Baby, you look great. Alice was played by an actress named Pert Kelton. Her career dated to vaudeville and early talking films, but when Red Channels came out, she was in it. Kelton filed suit, but it was later withdrawn. And when Gleason left DeMont and moved to CBS, Kelton had disappeared to be replaced by Audrey Meadows. Now, meanwhile, Kelton's career was revived in 1957 when she played the mother of Mary and the Librarian in The Music Man on Broadway, and she repeated her role in the 1962 film version. The most tragic case associated with Red Channels was probably that of Philip Loeb, who appeared in a popular CBS TV series called The Goldbergs, not to be confused with the contemporary sitcom of the same name. The Goldbergs had begun as a radio serial created and written by a woman named Gertrude Berg, who also starred as the good-hearted family matriarch, Molly. Loeb played her husband, Jake. Uh, Jake? Jake? Uh, you, you, you saw the movie already? Yeah, the title didn't appeal to me, so I went in and made arrangements to have the photographs taken tomorrow. Oh. Molly? Yes? Molly, darling, 
I want to apologize to you. For what? Uh, for nothing. Oh. So nothing. Nothing. I just want to say that I'm sorry. For what? Uh, for nothing. So? So nothing. Just want to say that maybe I shouldn't have said it. Said what? What I did say. Well, wh what did you say? Whatever I said. Uh, why not? Why not what? All right. You believe me, Mama? If you say so, I believe you, Jay. Jay? Yeah? And then Natalie Felston was here. What was she doing here? She, I called her. She should fix my hat. Behind my back? Why, behind your back, you wasn't here. And she told me to tell you that, she, that she's resigning. She's resigning? And that you would understand. Do you? Do I what? Understand. What else did she say? She said that she's going home. I can't believe it. Believe it, Jake. She said it. And she said she's ashamed. What did you say to her, Mother? How did you know? Who told you? I have eyes. Why didn't you tell me, Jake? You can't talk about other people's private affairs, even to your own wife. What do you mean? For weeks I've been trying to convince Natalie she should go back to her husband. Huh? Yeah. And now, one night she spends with you, and it's an accomplished fact. <laughs> tell me. Did she at least fix your hat before she oh, left? She did, yeah. Oh, she did, Jake, darling. Oh, and I love it, Jake. <laughs> I love it. In the late 1940s, after years off the air, The Goldbergs came to TV as a popular weekly sitcom. So popular that in the summer of 1950, the cast went to Hollywood to make a Goldbergs movie. Then in the fall, they returned to the air for a second season. But Loeb was in red channels. He was a longtime liberal who had supported causes like the Council for Pan-American Democracy and the N. Jim Crow in Baseball Committee. The sponsor of Goldberg's was, once again, General Foods. Gertrude Berg, as Molly, did commercials for Sanka Coffee on every show. And it took it took generations to have what we have, but we have it, and we shouldn't take it, you know, just uh, just for granted. Well, whatever is good, we haven't got it. J just name it, and we have it. From uh, from what shall I say? From from Sanka to yes, Sanka coffee. Yes, indeedy. Yes, indeedy. Don't forget, you know, that's a, that's an American necessity. You know, we are the powerhouse of the world, and the American people, you know, are the little dynamos. That's why, you know, not every American can drink coffee with caffeine in it. Not at all. That's why Sanka was born. What do you mean? 97% of the caffeine is out and the sleep is left in, and you can drink as much as you like and sleep, and it don't disturb your disposition, and it's delicious, and the flavor is memorable, absolutely memorable, and for the American temple, Instant Sanka fits like a glove. One, two, three, with a little boiling water, with a delicious, delicious cup of Sanka. And then, I, you know, I, I, I never get over wondering how uh, the wonderment of Americans in America and, and the wonderful inventions. I'm going to write a letter. You, you, you'll, you'll hear a letter. Excuse me. Sales of Sanka had increased 57% as a result of those spots. 
but the people at General Foods were still worried about the Hester McCulloughs and Lawrence Johnsons of the world. They wanted Loeb fired. CBS and Gertrude Berg refused at first. Then at the end of the season, the Goldbergs, despite its rating as one of TV's most popular shows, was canceled by CBS and General Foods departed as sponsor. The Goldbergs moved to NBC for a time, but Loeb was gone. Berg had offered him a settlement. He took it and resigned from the show. Loeb found himself increasingly shut out of TV and radio, and after a few theatrical roles, those dried up as well. He had debts and a son recovering from tuberculosis in a sanitarium. In 1955, Loeb, reportedly depressed and despondent, swallowed a mouthful of sleeping pills and died at age 64. Was there pushback against the blacklist? There was. And as often happens when you call a bully's bluff, it was surprisingly successful. We'll talk about that pushback in our next episode and about a lawsuit that effectively ended the blacklist. So stay tuned. My name's David Inman. Thanks for listening. See you later. Best beware.